Welcome to The Mentor List. To turn you into the best version of you that's around. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference. What is precious, what's really important and then putting some boundaries there. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Welcome to our CEO podcast series. Today's theme is the ability to adapt. Today we have Joe Barr joining us, who is the CEO of John Holland Group. One of the insights that Joe mentions in this conversation is the ability to adapt, ask questions, and to stay inquisitive is what's helped him stay ahead of the curve. So I hope you enjoyed today's CEO podcast series conversation with Joe Barr here on The Mentor List. So I'm here with Joe Barr. Joe, welcome to The Mentor List. Thank you very much, David. Good to see you. Well, it's great to have you on, and uh, I can see you're in the office there. You tell me you're in Sydney. Yes, I guess I'm lucky enough to be in Sydney. I'm in Piermont, uh, where our office is in Sydney. As you know, we've got offices all around Australia. So most of my time now is talking to external clients and staff and uh, leadership team from the office in Piermont all around the country. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, looking forward to our Zoom call today as well. One of many, unfortunately, in the life of a CEO in this current pandemic. So I guess the first question is sort of around career and just how did you advance to the role of CEO of John Holland? Thank you. It's something that um, when, when I tell other people about my journey, you sort of reflect on what got me here. And I guess the, the thing I would say is that when I began, I began with Lend-Lease many years ago after graduating from university and I did a Bachelor of Building at Melbourne University, which is a combination of commerce, architecture, engineering, law, a bit of a mix of everything. Ended up on a building site as a project engineer and then spent several roles. So I worked for Lend-Lease for 19 years. Spent about five years or a little bit more on building sites and that's where you really learn the art of building and construction. You learn mostly from people uh, who are in supervisor and foreman's roles. So it's a very different learning environment, if you like, from a university-educated environment to really getting your hands dirty, if you like, and, and dealing with the, with the real world. So I worked for Lend-Lease for 10 years in Australia on a combination of building sites and, and graduated from a project engineer through to project management and then what we call a site manager, a person responsible for a building project. And then I'd always been keen to go overseas. And at the time, Lend-Lease were expanding overseas and I put my hand up for roles overseas that came up. About a year after I put my hand up, I got an opportunity to go to Malaysia. And I went to Malaysia with Lend-Lease as a project manager on a building site, on a building project that we were doing in Kuala Lumpur. I was in Malaysia for 18 months and then the company asked me to then go to another project, this time in Philadelphia. And I went to Philadelphia for a year in the States and that was to design a pharmaceutical factory uh, that was being built in Singapore. And then after I did that for the year, Len Lees asked me to go to Ireland and I went to Ireland for a year. I lived in Cork in Ireland for a year and was managing the design of this pharmaceutical plant or a different pharmaceutical plant at that stage being built in, in Singapore. 
And then after those two years in both America and Ireland, uh, they asked me to go to Singapore and work on the pharmaceutical plant that I've been working on as a, as a designer in a project leadership function. And then after completing that, I eventually made my way to become a, a leader, a managing director for the pharmaceutical business. So basically up until that point, I've been on projects. My role had expanded on projects and I travelled quite a lot, which is a real learning experience and, and something I always, always cherish and encourage people to do. And then after 19 years of working with Len Lease, I got an opportunity to go to Dubai. And the opportunity in Dubai was the, to be the managing director of development projects for Sheikh Mohammed's development company called Nikhil. And that was in 2008. And in 2008 and 9, I went to Dubai and worked as the managing director for a number of these development projects, which were really fascinating projects. They were the size of a small town or being developed in Dubai. And Dubai at that stage was going gangbusters. There were more cranes in Dubai at that stage than anywhere else in the world. And the opportunity excited me. And the reason I went there was because of that opportunity, but because I knew someone from Lynn Lease who was my boss in the early days who was the managing director of Nikhil. So that's why I went there. And so after 19 years of working with Lynn Lease, I went to Dubai. It was then I had an amazing experience. I could write a book or, or, or do a, a small series. I don't know whether it be a comedy series or a tragedy. But Dubai was a really interesting place because having had the experience in Australia and in, in a lot of the Asian countries, I lived in Singapore prior to that for seven years with, with Lynn Lease and managed our pharmaceutical division there and then the Southeast Asian division. And I went to Dubai and it really tested my, everything I'd learned in the last 20 years because suddenly you were without the company that had brought you up, you didn't have that safety mechanism there and you were in a very foreign environment. I've been used to working in foreign countries, but you were in a very foreign environment because it was all new. The way the country worked was very, very different than anywhere I worked in the past and you were dealing with a whole lot of issues and a whole lot of uncertainty and a whole lot of lack of procedures and processes and transparency. I always look back at my time in Dubai and if I knew what I was getting into before I went there, I probably wouldn't have gone. But it was one of the biggest learning experiences I've had in my career because being equipped with all that I had learned in then least prior did equip me to do my job but you really needed to be quite street smart, I guess, about how you dealt with things and particularly people and, and, and the cultural aspects. So back in Asia, I was used to dealing with Asian cultures and, and working and understanding them, but dealing with the Emiratis and the people that were working in Dubai was a completely different, different aspect. Given that Dubai was booming at the time, that came with a whole lot of challenges namely a lack of procedures and a lot of corruption that was inherent in the Dubai economy. It's an economy that was flush with cash, that was being rapidly grown, and a lot of people that live in Dubai come from all the countries around Dubai, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Iran, all those sort of countries, and they are fleeing regimes that they're running away from, and they're starting a new life in Dubai. And therefore, it's fueled with quite a lot of cash and not much discipline. Certainly, I learned that in those days, 
those two combinations lead to a vast amount of corruption. So, so for me, working my way, understanding that and working how to deal with that was a, a real test. And it did test my ability to, and everything, I used everything I was, had learned in the previous 20 years to get through that. Trust your own judgment, trust your insight, know who's safe, know who's not safe, know what to do, know what not to do, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a very, very interesting two years in Dubai. And then I left Dubai and I came back to Australia and I got a job as the CEO of a company called Hanson Youngkin. And Hanson Youngkin is a privately owned family company, two families, um, been in those families for now 100 years and they were ready to take on a new CEO off the back of their CEO retiring. And I really enjoyed the stability of that after all that travel and, and time away. And I really enjoyed the challenge of my first CEO role and putting back that discipline and everything I'd learned through my, my years overseas. But that was good. And did that for seven years, really enjoyed that, enjoyed the certainty of that and the relative lack of travel. And then five years ago, I was approached by the owners, uh, the new owners of, of John Holland to become the CEO of John Holland. And I looked at that opportunity and thought that was a great opportunity to apply my learnings from the, the previous uh, experience that I'd had and step up to a CEO role of a company that was three or four times the size of the company I was then the CEO of. At the time I took over uh, John Holland, we were turning over about $3 billion a year and the Chinese owners had a real growth strategy. And my task was to, to grow the organisation, to look at new markets, et cetera, which we've done for the last four years. And it's been a pretty exhaustive journey through the last four years, but really enjoying it. We build major infrastructure work around Australia and Southeast Asia, metro work, building the Melbourne Metro, the Sydney Metro, projects like WestConnex in Sydney, rail work throughout the country, building work, hospitals, prisons, all those sorts of things. So that's pretty much my journey to date. But I guess that the, the thing that I would want to share in that is I was I never really set out to be in a CEO position in my early days. And I think part of my learning in that my journey was not being too ambitious too early, but taking the opportunity to learn and taking the opportunity to put your head down, work hard. And certainly in my Lend Lease career, early days, there was a temptation to sort of compare yourself with all the other then graduates and then young managers and then more senior managers. But I never really felt that I needed to do that. I, I just sort of enjoyed what I was doing, put my head down, and I got those opportunities to go overseas and keep learning. I always found myself being asked rather than asking for a senior role. And I think that's something I talk to my staff now in, in John Holland and say, part of what you will need to get into a leadership position is experience. And that experience that you're getting now as a junior person is the best because that's the time when you can really learn, ask questions. Because when you are in a senior role, yes, you, you've got to ask questions still and you've got to keep on learning, but you are obviously expected to have that experience and people look up to you for having that experience. And I think you can't, you can't short circuit that. And just on that experience, I mean, 
and, and, and thinking about sort of the career professionals coming through now and there's an urgency to, to really progress in you know, all facets of life and career is no exception or, or business is no exception. But how, how do you, when you were sort of moving into Malaysia, Philadelphia, Ireland, I mean, what was sort of the driver for seeking out those opportunities or you mentioned those opportunities were seeking you out. What was sort of the driver for, the, for, for so many geographical moves? Well, I guess it was a combination of I wanted to travel and work and Len Lease provided me with that opportunity. So I did put my hand up to do that. And I had always enjoyed travelling in my university and, and, and younger days. And I thought it was just a great opportunity to live and work overseas. So that I did put my hand up for that. But once I'd done that, I always thought I was going to be overseas for my first stint, which was the Malaysia opportunity, and then come back. But it was then that the company said, hey, we've got a, a job over in Philadelphia, we've got a job over in, in Ireland. And I said, yes. So I guess it was a combination of me wanting to do that and therefore projecting that. But the other ingredient to that is I didn't say no when they asked me. And I think I benefited from that enormously because saying yes and moving, when I look back at it, oh my God, we moved houses for seven different houses in in as many years. And you look back and think, wow, that was exhausting, but it was a great experience. You, you just got to take those opportunities because when they come, grab them because they are the best learning experiences that you'll have. Yeah, great. And do you think part of it was, I just wanted to sort of dig into people seeking you out. Um, it might sort of roll into one of the success habits around what served you well in your career. How do you think in hindsight that you were sought out for these positions? Were there things that you were doing or intentions you were setting that sort of came to fruition or were they caught by complete surprise? How would you share that? It's a bit of a balance, isn't it? Because my, my experience was I made it known that I was keen to travel. And I guess my first opportunity in Malaysia, when I look back at it, I probably think that I know inherently that part of who I am and my inquisitiveness was essential to being able to live and work successfully overseas. And it's only when you then compared yourself to others that were having similar experiences in the same geography that some people like that and some people don't like that. Back in, this was the late 90s, back in Malaysia, it was a fairly challenging environment to be in, Malaysia as an expat. It was well set up for that, but not as refined as, say, a Singapore opportunity. And I think you look around and you think, how other people adapt? And I think the adaption skill is something that you need in that environment because you've got to deal with change. And in hindsight, I think that that maybe is what stood out to those that were asking me to go to the next journey because they knew I would be dependable and they knew I could adapt. So going from Malaysia to America was a big cultural shift, as you would appreciate. But even in America, you would think that you would be more culturally aligned with the Americans, or maybe you wouldn't these days, but I think the ability to be able to adapt is something that probably was inherent in, in who I am, but probably stuck out to others as, as, as when they asked me. Because when I had experience of other expats or people working overseas, a lot of people didn't like the opportunity or 
wanted to go home more often. And I was a big believer that if I'm overseas, then yes, go back and see friends and family, but enjoy the opportunity of holidaying where I was and explore the area I was and find out about the history and so on where I was. And I think that you need to display that when you are overseas and travelling, display an interest in where you are and get into the culture and the cultural norms and you'll enjoy it a lot more. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, thanks for sharing. The next question is just around strategy and you mentioned, you know, you weren't comparing to the others. It sounds like you're, you're playing a long game from a career perspective. But how have you consistently stayed ahead of the curve? Inherently, when I, when I reflect on that, it's probably just the ability to ask questions and be inquisitive of the thing, of the thing my main, main drivers. I've always found that in any situation, your questions will reveal more about the topic you're discussing for others than you perhaps think they would in the first place. So in my experience, certainly when I went to America, I was looking after the design of a pharmaceutical facility. I'd never come across a pharmaceutical facility in my life before, so I needed to learn a lot about it. And therefore, you almost have license to ask the questions that you don't have license to after the first few months, if you like. And I think that ability and that inquisitiveness is, is really important in strategy. Don't forget to ask questions because I think a lot of people believe that they should know the answers because they're in a position or have the experience. But it's amazing when you ask the question that you reveal a ton of knowledge that you wouldn't expect to unfold in yourself and others. So that's been a big part of my learning. Keep on asking questions. And particularly from an adaptive point of view, ask questions about experience and about who people are um, because you'll then learn what motivates them. So, for example, when I was in America, the Americans were quite proud of, of what they did and how they did it, but it's a very different way of doing it than we did in Australia. And asking them about how they do things uh, was a great learning experience. It enabled the ability for them to engage with you and you weren't arriving somewhere saying, you know it all. I'm being a little bit humble and that is, is important as well, I think. So I think, yeah, my main, my main ahead of the curve is being inquisitive. A bit of reading as well. I enjoy catching up with the news and topics, particularly in, in the construction and infrastructure industry. We're fortunate because we touch upon a lot of different industries, be it rail, infrastructure, it might be healthcare work, prisons. So you tend to learn a lot about how things work in the business world from the type of projects that you're doing. And you end up with a pretty big database of how business works by working on those projects. Always asking questions reveals a lot. Thanks for sharing, Joe. I find asking those questions too, there's usually you know, two or three others in the room that kind of wish they asked it as well. Or we're thinking, should I ask it? No, I want to be the, I want to be the, the guy that knows the answers. Yeah, okay. Thank you so much for sharing. The next question is around enablement. And just as a CEO, how have you embraced technology or other sort of forms of leverage? One of the things that I have found very informative is, is just the use of data and how data can inform your decision-making. And in the construction and infrastructure industry, we are certainly not as innovative and progressive as some other industries. So seeing what 
industries like the pharmaceutical industry have done to embrace data and their, the science of what they do got me thinking about what we need to do in our industry. Um, so one of the things I've really enjoyed doing is capturing data from the projects that we do, more about the productivity of what we do. How long does it take to do something? How fast can we do it? What things can we do differently to make it faster? How can we sequence and sequence it differently, etc.? So I found by adapting strategies to capture that data and then display that in our systems is very informative. And it does a couple of things. It helps you make decisions quicker and with more information. But importantly, it throws a light on what you're doing well and produces a uniformity. So in our business, for example, we have uh, about 80 projects that we do within Australia and you don't want every project to be different. You don't want every project to be using a different system. So the use of data drives consistency and results because you need the right definitions about how you're doing things in order to inform yourself and make sure the data is the same. So I found that really useful and something that's been relatively surprisingly innovative in the industry because we're not good at the consistency of data. Each different project, if you leave them to their own devices, people themselves are innovative and they do things differently. So trying to make sure that you allow them flexibility but provide that in a, under one system has been something that I've, I've benefited from. Yeah, fantastic. I, I guess it sort of stops you starting again with each project, whether it's a, you know, a huge tunnel or a big rail infrastructure. I mean, whilst the projects are different, I guess you're sort of suggesting that there's similarities in the activities that are going on there and taking the learning of one project into the next so you're not sort of starting from scratch again. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, that, and that comes about in two ways. It comes about in, say, the methodology that you use and how you go about the project, but also informs you of the supply chain. So we have common designers, common subcontractors that work on our jobs and knowing how they have performed is hugely powerful when you're obviously thinking about who you should work with on the next project but it's really informative about how productive they've been, how safe have they been, what's their culture like. So if you have indicators and dashboards and reports that tell you that, they're quite often surprised when you say to them, excellent, you've worked on this project, we want you to work on this project, and here's your data, here's your safety record of the last project. And often you're informing them things that they actually don't know as well as you do about their business performance on your project. And that's a really good way of improving, I guess, the overall collective of, of people that work on our projects. Because on our projects, John Holland has about 6,000 employees, but at any stage we would have over 100,000 people working on our, on our projects or more around the, around the country because we predominantly employ labour or subcontractors to do our work. A huge workforce, amazing. The ne next question, you mentioned before, ability to adapt and how you've sort of thrown yourself into different geographical regions and that's something that you've found that's really a habit that you've that served you well during your career. Next question is around sort of execution and what are some of the lasting changes you see to your operating model as a result of 2020? 2020 for us, first and foremost, we've been fortunate in our industry because we have kept working. When we started when COVID first came along, it was interesting. I'm, I'm, we're owned by the Chinese. So I remember talking to my, my boss who's in Beijing 
And he told me when we were just beginning to hear about Wuhan and what was happening there, he was in Beijing and he, he told me he was in lockdown in Beijing. And this is in January. I think I remember coming to a meeting in, in Melbourne and sharing that when we were discussing what to do in Melbourne. So we had a bit of a heads up on, on what, was, what was going on. When, I think it was around about March, that COVID started to become a real issue and we started travel bans, we were worried about what our industry was, would we be able to keep on going? And when we looked to, particularly Europe, a lot of European countries, France, Italy, Spain, had their first wave of, of COVID, but the industry had shut down. So we turned our mind as an industry to how we could keep on working. And fortunately, in our industry, we are very systematic. So safety and the safety regime is hugely a big part of the industry. The industry is inherently dangerous and you need to do a lot of things to make sure that you keep your people safe. And therefore, you're very, very focused on safety as an industry. And that systematic approach on dealing with problems, dealing with issues, dealing with the way you work was really, really helpful in how we manage COVID. So what we turned our minds to is how could we adopt a safe work procedure for keeping social distancing and keeping our sites going? And that type of question is the question we often ask ourselves about how do we put up this facade? What do we need to do to make sure we do that safely? We're just turning our mind to how do you do it with the social distance aspect. And we pretty quickly did that. We adopted procedures to do that and prove that we could work safely on our projects. So we made evidence-based decisions on whether we could work or not. And that was about the time when a lot of companies were asking themselves, one, is our industry going to keep on working? And secondly, what do we do from a support base? So we made some pretty early decisions about changing our procedures and monitoring them. And they worked and we monitored that performance and we understood very early on that we could keep on working. Our productivity dropped a little bit in those early days, but then we worked on how to improve that. So we were, we were blessed with being able to do that. And one of the big learnings from that, however, is flexibility. So we've had a lot of our most organisations, people working from home, but what we turned our mind to is how on a building site could we get a lot of the support staff working from home that typically we thought would have to be on site? So when I say support staff, admin, admin staff, financial staff, engineers, design managers that would typically be on a project and now working from home. And we are very keen to make sure that we keep those lessons and bring them to our work platform as we move through 21 because they're great productivity savings and they're great for your work-life balance. So although many people are probably sick of being at home at the moment, one of the challenges in our industry is the long hours, the need to be on site very early in the morning before work gets going and be there late at night after work packs up. We don't need to do that anymore. And that's given our people license to say, I can do my job from home, which in a very labour-intensive industry is a bit of a breakthrough, so we want to hold on to that. Yeah, fantastic. All right, well, thank, thanks for sharing, Joe, and um, that sort of concludes the interview today. So I just wanted to say thank you for sharing your experience and your recent experience in, in managing John Holland through COVID and also what sounds like a very globally focused and geographically 
moving and progressive career. So, yeah, thanks very much, Joe, and thanks for sharing. Pleasure. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today at The Mentor List. If you'd like to hear more or speak to us about recommending our next interview guest, come on through to mentorlist.com.au. You can also find out more about our suite of mastermind series taking shape in your area, your industry, and your discipline. We look forward to welcoming you to one of our events very soon. Stay tuned for another great show. for listening to The Mentor List. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to just take a few seconds to leave a rating and or comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.